0: that intentionality, whether it's a microdose or whether it's a moderate dose or whether it's a high dose is so important because the mind in everyday life can be very chaotic. It can be all over the place. And when we work with the psychedelic, there's a level of, um, we we narrow our focus with that intention. It's like a, a mantra when we're meditating. It allows us to narrow the focus, to excavate potentially what might be lying there in the subconscious or the unconscious, and that allows for a very, let's say, fruitful or productive experience. Collective
1: Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler before we get into today's episode i want to talk to you about a protocol that i'm passionate about that i use in my practice you know everyone wants to slow down aging but few are really doing it the right way there's something i do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month it's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells these are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells and they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells, helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia senolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on qualia synolytic, shows that synolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about synolytic research and to try qualia synolytic risk-free for 100 days, go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's qualia synolytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. Welcome to the Collective Insights podcast for this week. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler and I'll be your host. And today is an interview that I'm very excited about. Uh, We're gonna be interviewing Paul Austin. As the founder of Third Wave, Paul has educated millions on the importance of safe and effective psychedelic experiences. A pioneer at the intersection of microdosing, personal transformation and professional success. He has been featured in Forbes, Rolling Stone and the BBC's Work Life. Paul is also the author of Mastering Microdosing. Paul, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Dan, it's it's
2: an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about this because uh, psychedelics is an area that I've done a lot of deep dives into and in preparation for all of this medical wave of it, I think uh, that's, that's on the verge but um tell me a little bit about i mean most people they get into this area because of a personal experience now you started third wave what back in 2015 i believe Um, seven years ago now Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's like the go-to spot for for people not only just beginning to explore psychedelics but those that are also experienced um so can you give us a little bit of background about how you kind of came about this and decided to go this route.
0: So I grew up in West Michigan, uh, a suburb in a suburb of a, a city called Grand Rapids. In a fairly traditional family, not not conservative, but definitely um, religious uh, kind of morality was very much determined by religion, what was good and what was bad in in somewhat of a sheltered home. And as part of that, there was a pretty heavy stigma around um cannabis, illegal drugs, and also psychedelics. And so at the age of 16, uh, my parents ended up, you know, found out that I was smoking weed. And I remember sitting down, it was a Sunday after church. And my dad basically said that, you know, it was the most disappointed that he had been since his brother had died. And so I, I was really raised in and and I love my dad, and we have a great relationship. But that was just sort of the the intensity of the moment, and what it was what it was bringing up for for the family dynamic. And so, there was always a sense of growing up in in West Michigan of these 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 medicines, these plants that, in in many ways, are God given. Uh, they they have a really deep stigma to them, and so there was a there was a felt sense of uh, you know. Um, there was a felt sense of i couldn't be who i wanted to be there was a felt sense of of the things that i was doing were wrong and therefore i was wrong and so i really uh, you know i i basically became more more of a turtle and i and i and i was more edgy and i was sort of more difficult and more angry and more rebellious as a result of that and then at the age of 19 i i was it was the end of my sophomore year of of college and i was with a few friends and at the time i was i was um I was still u- utilizing cannabis here and there, um, utilizing cannabis here and there. And I found out about LSD and had this beautiful experience of about 250 micrograms of LSD with a few close friends uh, out on Lake Michigan, which has these beautiful sand dunes and woods. And it was just like an epic, epic day. and And I remember the core shift when I worked with acid was this recognition of uh, my interconnectedness, kind of the inter, the sense of interbeing that I have with trees, that I have with animals, that I have with people, that I have with energy, and when I sort of came to that recognition and that understanding, I, 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 I realized that, you know, everything that I do is impacted by the environment around me, and because of this sort of experience of this mystical experience, let's call it for lack of a better term, this mystical experience of connection to something greater and unknown. I was really driven or or pulled into well, this is the one life that I have to live, and why not why not make the most of it? Why not really go out there and live a more unconventional way of being? And so, at the age of 21, I moved to Turkey where I taught English, and then uh, 24, I was living in Chiang Mai in Thailand. And um, you know, I, I this was a few years after I first worked with LSD, and I was thinking back to those early LSD experiences because I ended up doing acid maybe. 10 to 15 times over a two to three year span. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remembered that for the week or two after those high dose LSD experiences, I was more present, I was more connected, I made better decisions about the food that I ate, I, I meditated more often, I was more kind to people around me. And then inevitably after two or three weeks that would sort of dissipate and I would sort of be back in my normal Paul way of being. And so when I heard about microdosing in 2015, when I was living in Chiang Mai, um, I thought, you know, this is interesting because microdosing could be a tool to elongate that window of neuroplasticity that happens after a high dose psychedelic experience. And if we could integrate it and I could work with it, then I might be able to... um, integrate behavioral change on a more consistent basis rather than just going through these spurts and it dying down it could be a much more elongated process and so i i ended up microdosing twice a week for seven months um it really helped with dealing with social anxiety at the time i totally cut off all alcohol that i was drinking and it also helped with more sort of flow and creativity and i you know i was reflecting and it was like i really think this is a powerful tool and a powerful modality as an entrepreneur, I sort of saw that psychedelics would be this next thing after cannabis, that there was more research coming out, more influencers speaking about it, that cannabis as a previously illicit drug was now legitimized. And so I thought, you know, if there was one mission that I could dedicate my energy to, my my sort of life, my vitality to, it would be to normalize psychedelic substances and help people recognize that these have been stigmatized, that the education that's out there about them is Largely incorrect. And then, if we could just educate people and help them start at a microdose level rather than jumping in the deep end, then this could help millions of people potentially, not only with mental health, uh, depression, addiction, PTSD, suicide, but also with leadership, with performance, with growth, with evolution. Um, you know, from that early LSD experience, uh, I, w- I was really, my, my, my curiosity was piqued about the nature of consciousness. And so, from that very point, I was always then interested in what is consciousness, how do we expand consciousness, and what does the expansion of consciousness mean for new paradigms? What does it mean for new systems? What does it mean for um, you know the future of society and culture?
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. And um, you know, I work with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and and kind of high performing people, and so I. Am exposed to their experiences quite frequently um, with psychedelics, and it was really surprising to me how many of them were were using it. But you know, the big difference that that I noticed with this group, and you've I think you've used this term, intentionality. Uh, so when they're using these psychedelics, they generally are not using them to party. Or I mean, some of them will occasionally do that, but the bulk. Of them during this time, they're they've got some intention as to what they're trying to achieve with them. Have you noticed that? Well, and
0: so Stan Grof, who did a lot of research with LSD in the '50s and '60s in the Czech Republic, it was legal. He then invented holotropic breathwork. He always calls psychedelics non-specific amplifiers, right? And so they amplify often what's going on in the subconscious and the unconscious, which is why they're so powerful and so when 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 there isn't a level of intentionality that is utilized with psychedelics there's a risk that there could be a, a very challenging or even traumatic experience that even if they're only being used let's say at a festival where you take some mushrooms with friends you know there are plenty of people that i know who have done that and then all of a sudden it goes sideways and forever they are scarred mm. by that experience unfortunately um you know the way that these have been used for thousands of years indigenously has always been in ceremony has always been with sort of a sacred purpose has always been even you know in ancient greece it was it was it, it was the mysteries it was you did not talk about it you did not go on about it because what was brought up was so it was it was often this, this this spark of divinity and so that that intentionality whether it's a microdose or whether it's a moderate dose or whether it's a high dose is so important because the mind in everyday life can be very chaotic It can be all over the place. And when we work with the psychedelic, there's a level of um, we we, we narrow our focus with that intention. It's like a a mantra when we're meditating. It allows us to narrow the focus to excavate potentially what might be lying there in the subconscious or the unconscious. And that allows for a very, let's say, fruitful or productive experience. Now, one thing you mentioned, which I want to of double back on is there is healing in the raves and there's healing in dancing and there's healing in that sense of connectedness that can come from doing it in more let's say social settings but i also believe there could be a there's a level of intentionality with that you know i've had experiences with 10 or 12 friends where we may do let's say psilocybin and mdma together at a home we have music it's it's intentional but we're still there to connect and, and play and have fun and so, I don't think it always has to be this deep shadow work, right? there There is a place and a time for for healing trauma and going there. But psychedelics are also these incredibly beautiful medicines that allow us to have these experiences of of connection with loved ones that that it, that is hard to replicate um with with other means
2: i'm I'm glad you brought that up because um, really intentionality and social. I differentiate from partying, um, right. because I mean, it's a very common thing in the community to, to gather close friends. Uh, you know, even the, the interesting thing is we, we actually almost create this because like with the MDMA, um, uh, gatherings where we, you hear the classic cuddle puddles and, and all of that, you know, that, um, that, um, oxytocin and dopamine release you get with the mdma it really improves social bonding um, love for your fellow human although you have to be cautious with it because it increases affinity to people within your tribe but the outsiders can get pushed away a little bit oxytocin is kind of double-edged in that regard Um, but i love the the fact that you brought that up because um you know a lot of people will make the comment that oh they're just using it to party when they really are using it for social connections um so that, that's beautiful um you know one area that i wanted to talk about uh, that your your expertise really uh, lands is in in the microdosing realm and here's here's my dilemma with this
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know i've i'm reading most of the literature that comes out on a regular basis on microdosing. And when it comes to psilocybin, it seems like recently we're seeing that microdosing isn't really doing much. Mm-hmm. Um, we find, you know, when I'm looking at the studies, it's, it, it's interesting how many people, um, um, what they call it, when they blind out, on the on the study because they know what they're taking versus the placebo because there is this little changes in the physiology even though it's a sub perceptual dose there's still changes that they'll notice that they go oh okay and people's expectations guide outcomes pretty substantially now I know it's the studies on LSD are different I mean I've seen the EEG studies uh, brainwave patterns of people with microdosing LSD and they're pretty profound. Um, and impactful. And this, tell me, talk to me a little bit about microdosing with psilocybin.
0: Yeah, this is this is a it's a hot topic right now um, in terms of the clinical research that's starting to come out. You know, a, a little bit of background just just for listeners before I, we get super deep into it. Um, there's really, I would say, two main forms of clinical research related to psychedelics. One is psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, which is usually a very high dose. There's therapeutic support before and after. This is what MAPS is using to bring MDMA through clinical trials. This is what um, psilocybin is being brought through to do treatment-resistant depression. It's really that ego-dissolving experience and then bringing things back. Now, there's another methodology called psycholytic psychotherapy uh, or psycholytic-psychedelic therapy. And this is using smaller doses. It could be micro doses, it could be mini doses, where it's done consistently throughout, let's say, a therapeutic um, container. So you might take it twice a week for six months and see what the changes and impacts are. And so a lot of the way that we're looking at, let's say, microdosing research is more so the, the latter rather than the former. We're looking at those incremental changes that are happening over 30 days or 60 days or 90 days rather than, oh, I took this and I need to see some immediate impact or effect, right? So I think that's that's number one that's helpful context. Number two is microdosing generally is a very new concept as a result of that. Although there was research on psycholytic therapy in the 50s and 60s, very little of that has been replicated in current clinical studies because of some of the difficulties with getting it through FDA clinical trials so the focus has been largely on i would say 95% in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy so we're just starting to see some of that research that's coming out about low dosing microdosing in conjunction with coaching or therapeutic support so just to lay that framework now when it comes to current clinical research on microdosing there are there are some trials that are coming out that show basically null effect right that there's no really effect of microdosing on mood on cognition on energy. There's also clinical trials that are coming out that are showing a statistically significant effect on mood, on energy, on cognition. What I'm picking up on in terms of the pattern of why this is happening is the clinical research that is happening or the research generally that is happening in naturalistic settings is showing a statistically significant effect. The clinical research that's happening more so in laboratories is not showing a statistically significant effect, which speaks to the importance of environment and set and setting, even at these lower dose levels. And I'll give you I'll give you sort of two examples of that just to just to help bring this home. So I, I recently did an interview with a with a researcher out of New Zealand. His name is Suresh, and his last name is about forty letters, and I can't really pronounce it. But Suresh is doing he's done phase one clinical trial research on uh, micro doses of LSD, ten micrograms, in New Zealand. And they have a very, because it's in New Zealand, they can set up a very unique methodology, which is people can take the LSD home with them as part of the clinical research. And what they found in that clinical research is um, they did uh, the research over, I believe it was three to six months, something like that, and they found that because they were able to bring it home with them and use the LSD in a naturalistic setting when they're drinking tea when they're going for a hike when they're with loved ones that there was a statistically significant effect on energy mood and cognition. Um what they found is they they did another smaller trial and they found that when people just did it in a laboratory in New Zealand 10 micrograms of LSD same methodology but in a laboratory there was no statistical difference. And so this speaks to the importance of even at lower doses the set and setting, and it also speaks to, um, I think, some of the differences between uh, LSD and psilocybin. And I want to get into psilocybin because I know that was that was your question in particular. So when it comes to microdosing psilocybin. There's There's been some clinical research that's been done out of Imperial College in the UK. Like I said, that research has been more laboratory focused. They found no statistically significant results with the microdoses of psilocybin, I think up to 200 milligrams. So the standard microdose of psilocybin is somewhere around 100 milligrams, but could go up to 200 milligrams. Paul Stamets, who most of your listeners may be familiar with, world-renowned mycologist, he has been doing research um, with the University of British Columbia, uh, utilizing an app called Quantified Citizen. They're basically telling people to download an app on the days that they microdose psilocybin to then track and measure what's happening uh, with that app. And they found statistically significant results on microdosing psilocybin, again, when people were utilizing it at home, utilizing it in a naturalistic setting, and then self-reporting, kind of using a more cutting-edge personalized medicine or personalized data approach. So I think my observations on all of this are we are finding statistically significant results with microdoses of both LSD and psilocybin. Further experimental research needs to be mindful of utilizing microdoses in a naturalistic setting. And most importantly, which I haven't even mentioned yet, is, is combining it with Coaching or therapeutic support. All of the microdosing research that's been done so far is um, doesn't have that. Uh, there, there, there's there's not a, an individual on the other end who is helping to coach someone or or provide therapeutic support before and after. And yet, what we know from psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is there's always therapeutic support, and that's actually responsible for some, if not much, of the the, the healing that comes from the actual psychedelic. And so I think going forward utilizing naturalistic settings, making sure there's a coach to support before and after or or a therapist or a practitioner who knows this landscape, I think will help to show more statistically significant results. So those uh, there's a lot there, but I think that just helps to provide some context in terms of like because I've also, you know, I've been I've been microdosing 7 years. I've been teaching about microdosing for 7 years. I've been called a charlatan in some cases, in some respects, because some people are like, there's nothing going on with microdosing. And so I've also been actively watching this in terms of how are these being set up? Is it reflective of how people are actually utilizing it? What amount are people even taking? I think there's a lot of confusion about what even constitutes a microdose. Some people will say, oh yeah, I took a half gram of mushrooms you know, last night for a sound ceremony. It was a microdose. And I'm like, maybe like if, if, if someone's been SSRIs for a long time, if there's, there's a high level of neuroticism then a half gram of mushrooms could be a microdose, but for most people, it's a hundred to 200 milligrams. And so I think also that definition of what is a microdose is important. Paul Stamets said it best when I was, I was interviewing him for the podcast a few weeks ago. And he said, it's, it's a dose level that is sub intoxicating. So in other words, you're not, you know, you, you, People can still drive a car on it. Not recommending that by any stretch of the imagination, but that's possible. There's no visual changes. Um, you can generally navigate everyday life, uh, and so I think that frame around sub intoxicating is really helpful because once we get into that that realm of psychedelics, where you're starting to see visuals and you have to lay down, and like then we're we're far beyond a microdose into into kind of much more journey dose level.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, I've had a lot of clients that experimented with microdosing, and many of them had difficulty noticing any effect when they were they were in that 100 to 200. Uh, although some did, um, others though needed that sub threshold dose uh, around 400 to 500, and and they experienced the effects, of the greater well being. Uh, a little bit more creativity, a little bit more thinking outside the box, that kind of stuff, um, which is what these entrepreneurs are seeking with with the microdosing in most most of these cases. Um, well, and, also- and just okay. well,
0: just to add to that, Dan is is a lot of people are also finding that doing a high dose first creates, let's say, some sensitivity. It helps to break or decondition the sort of armor that we carry around with us every day. And then after that sensitivity is open, people then find, Oh, normally like I was microdosing before and it took me 400 milligrams or 500 milligrams, but now it's only a hundred to 200. So I think there's also a a process, a journey there where sometimes these high doses are necessary to fully get the most out of microdosing, not always, but sometimes.
2: Yeah. I've also seen that with LSD though. I mean, everybody's tolerance is different. And I think, you know, really testing out, starting very low and, and kind of working up because some people they'll take, uh, you know, uh, 25 micrograms of LSD and, and they're altered. And yet I've seen others that have taken 100 to 200 micrograms and that's a microdose for them. Right. I mean, it's crazy.
0: Well, and Stan Croft used to, in a book he wrote about the psychotherapy he did with LSD, he had some patients that would come in, it would take a thousand micrograms of LSD and it would have no effect, <laughs> right? And so I think this is this gets into a couple points, which is not everyone is responsive to psychedelics. There, I think there's about 10% of the population that are just not responsive. There are others, those who have schizophrenia or are predisposed to that. It's contraindicated, obviously, with, with utilizing psychedelics. But the the deeper point that we're speaking to is the necessity of calibration and that no two people are alike and that it really does require then, and this is why I love microdosing as a starting point, it requires a willingness to engage and and, and to actually work with the medicine, to work with the substance to some degree. Um, Even if that's just five micrograms and then 10 micrograms and 15, there has to be a willingness to step in and see how it feels and then calibrate from there with the recognition that it's not going to be perfect the first time around.
2: Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about um, frequency on the dosing because this is something um, a lot of people ask about um, because they hear you know the all the different 5HT2A uh, receptor changes that occur when you when you take a dose. So the next day you're downregulated and you have to wait 24, 48. I mean, I've seen people talk about 24 hours, 48 hours, even up to four days. Is there anything in the literature on the the frequency on the dosing?
0: In terms of scientific literature, I would say there's some, but not a lot at this point in time. In, in terms of um, frameworks that are being utilized, I often talk about three uh, because it, they each provide a slightly different approach. One is James Fadiman, who was the guy who first popularized microdosing, what I call the godfather of microdosing, his initial protocol that he came out with in 2011 was one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off, because there is a 48-hour window of tolerance when it comes to the classic psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, uh, the ones that are really active at the 5-HT2A receptor. And so you do it the first day. You feel some of that afterglow on the second day, and then you use the third day to sort of reset and get back to baseline before you do it again, right? And what, what Fadiman recommends is you do that for 10 cycles, so 10 microdoses, five weeks or so, take a, take a break, kind of reevaluate where you're at, what's shifted, what's changed, what's improved, what, what maybe has not improved, and then re-engage after that point with a bit more of a, an intuition around how it goes. Paul Stamets talks about doing it four days on, three days off. And his approach is much more, I would say, about supplementation. So he has the stamet stack, Lion's Mane, niacin, and psilocybin, uh, which he claims the, the synergy of those is greater than the, the, the sort of individual um, uh, benefit of, of each one. And that doing that four days on, three days off allows for this sort of buildup of BDNF, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. And then that allows for the, the three days off, then allows for a reset back to baseline before you do four days on again. Um, usually when, especially with those who are new to, to microdosing, I almost always prefer the Fadiman protocol. I think there is, there is um, especially with LSD, there's there's a higher degree of risk for mania if doing it too often because it's quite dopaminergenic. Um, whereas with with psilocybin, it's it's more serotonergic. So it, it, I still think four days on straight is a lot, right? I, I, I do think it's best to start slow two days on and see how that feels. Um, and then the third and final one is, you know, f- I think of frameworks like scaffolding, right? And so these frameworks help us to sort of get an initial orientation inside the, the realm of microdosing or psychedelics, especially for those who are new. But once that scaffolding is built, then there's a capacity to really ask, okay, do I want a to microdose today? Right, intuitively, um, you know, I uh, I have this hike coming up with a friend. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go for a five mile hike, and so for that hike, I might take ten micrograms of LSD because I know it gives me more energy, more vitality. Uh, I can I, I'm, I'm more extroverted, so since I'm going with a friend, we're gonna ping ideas back and forth. Off Better pain one another. Tolerance. <laughs> higher pain tolerance. Exactly, higher pain tolerance. No, this is and, and clinical research has shown that. I'm actually glad that that you mentioned that that microdoses of LSD uh, allow for a greater pain tolerance than opioids, which is fascinating. Um, or if I'm I'm doing some coaching, I might decide, hey, 200 milligrams of psilocybin or 300 milligrams of psilocybin. I need to do some deeper inner work. Some some reflection is going to be really good for that as well. So I think once once the scaffolding has been built, once um, kind of people who are new to microdosing have tried those frameworks, then it's largely driven by intuition, uh, is, is my sense. And sort of asking the question, is is it an appropriate day to do this today? And if yes, well, then, then, mm-hmm. you know, take part and see, see, see what happens from there.
2: I like that. Um, on the, on the Stamets protocol, I have to see what your opinion is on this, because this is yeah. what a lot of us have kind of uh, determined about it. So, The niacin with the microdose, um, I feel like that is added in there to induce the person to sense that something is happening in the system. I mean, this was used for years in the supplement industry with, with pre-workout formulas. Uh, They would add the niacin to give that tingling and that flush and people would say, oh yeah, it's working. Um, I suspect the same thing is going on with Stamets protocol. And I know there's vasodilation that occurs with that. So you can theorize that there's greater delivery, but I'd love to hear your opinion on that.
0: I think you're spot on. I also I also sense there is um, kind of a it, it's a it acts as a natural defense against taking too much. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, Stamets is now, he started a, a public benefit corporation called Mycomedica. They've raised $60 million. They're bringing the stamina stack through clinical trials. And a huge question that regulators are going to ask is, well, what if people take 10 of these instead of one? Mm -hmm. And so I think the niacin is also in there to mitigate doing a lot, doing a macro dose instead of a mini dose or a micro dose, because anyone who's taken niacin knows (laughs) that just a micro dose is enough. And if you take 10X of that, you're going to be in a really uncomfortable
2: place. You're going to be red as uh as red Santa as hell. Claus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now you're doing some um some work uh, in addition to third wave. You've got um synergy and some coaching as well that yeah. you guys do, right?
0: Yeah, so 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 th- there's a little there to unpack. So third wave I started in 2015. Um and the focus was it was a hobby for the first couple of years. And, um, I was running another business in the teaching English landscape. So I love education. I love to teach. I love, I love all of that. And so I really, uh, in third wave, I just was like, this has to exist and we're going to build it and we're going to help educate people. And in 2016, I started a podcast in 2017, we rolled out a microdosing course. And then in 2017, 2018, I was giving a number of talks at conferences. Uh, tech conferences, South by Southwest, the next web, you know, a handful of others. And, and uh, a lot of these talks were in Europe and the Netherlands. And I had a Dutch friend who was like, I really think we should start a legal psilocybin retreat center. And so in 2018, we started doing legal psilocybin retreats and psilocybin truffles are legal in the Netherlands. Um, synthesis is the the name of that. And I was involved with that for a year in 2018. And then I was still working on third wave and you know I was kind of split. And I made we made the decision as co-founders that I would just be an advisor and help support, but that a lot of my support would be through building third wave and and utilizing that. So the, the team at Synthesis is phenomenal. They um they will be the first legal psilocybin retreat center in Oregon uh, because Oregon is now legalized psilocybin. We've purchased a, a, a retreat center that can host about 70 people outside of Ashland for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're 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 doing phenomenal work and really pioneering more so in the the therapeutic realm psilocybin for for therapeutic support. And what we've done lately at Third Wave is, my focus from the get go since twenty fifteen has been on non clinical non medical performance leadership, um, growth evolution. I think it is so powerful. Uh, what psychedelics can do for mental health, what psychedelics can do for PTSD, depression, addiction—no doubt they are uh, incredible tools and so necessary. And uh, psychedelics for indications is a microcosm of what their potentially potential utility is. Um, and so, I'm I'm really interested in in what Michael Pollan would call the betterment of well people. And so, through Third Wave, we've we've pioneered an approach which I call the the skill. Of psychedelics and looking at psychedelics as a meta skill uh, that can help to drive and 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 develop neuroplasticity that can help us to um, better deal with uncertainty and adapt to you know novel situations um, that can allow us to be more sort of cognitively uh, potent and focused and on point um, that can allow us to be better communicators to be more compassionate to be more empathetic. And so that skill of psychedelics, I I really look at sort of a a matrix of high doses, uh, low doses, and then lifestyle practices. And then looking at frequency, how often are we doing this? What type of medicine are we using? And what amount of medicine are we using? And so I, you know, we, we, we roll out a training program for practitioners. It's, it's focused on coaching. So how, how do you help, how do you help clients prepare and integrate? We have a lot of executive coaches, peak performance coaches, wellness coaches, life coaches. We have some clinicians, therapists, MDs, psychologists, counselors, and that, that I, I like to take the, the, the sort of broadest perspective possible. Right. And so if psychedelics are a skill. Uh, how can we as practitioners first master that skill? You know, what's, what's the utility of ayahuasca? You know, what is that really good for? Well, it's, it's great for shadow work. It's great for connection to lineage. It's great for sometimes this sort of opening of, of God consciousness. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, what, what about LSD? Well, LSD is, is really great for cognition and creativity and innovation. Well, what about MDMA? MDMA is great for trauma. And it's great for, for, for sort of a, a, an easy way in. And so, so I just sort of, through this training program, lay out the entire landscape of, mm-hmm. okay, how are psychedelics a skill? And then how, is, how first can we as practitioners master that skill ourselves, right? And lead by example, because as a practitioner, as a coach, uh, an MD, a therapist, someone who's supporting others, the more inner depth we can create right? The, the the deeper that we can dig ourselves, the more capacity we will have to hold space for others as they move through what could be a very uncomfortable and also transformative process. And so the focus of that program, it's a six-month program. Um, we have three months of theory, which is like, again, the skill of psychedelics. We do a six-day retreat in Costa Rica, an intensive, because the, the in-person component builds community. A lot of people who are in the psychedelic space what, what I often hear again and again and again is I feel isolated and I feel sort of alone in navigating this because it's still illegal, because there's a lot of uncertainty, because it's still stigmatized. And so I think another thing is we like to bring world-class practitioners together who can then team up, create coherence, and go pioneer from there. And then we also have a practicum aspect as well, where we actually hold people as they move into the coaching process, because this is so new and novel, especially in an executive coaching landscape. There's a lot of challenges to navigate um, with psychedelics, especially outside of a sort of uh, clinical model. And so that that program, I would say, is it, it, it it's it's what I love most about this work is the retreats, the in person, the connection, the teaching, the education. I do believe education is central. To uh, what it is that we're seeing with the the sort of third wave of psychedelics and ensuring it's successful and it's really going to be about the quality of providers uh, that are out there, because, as you and I both know. um, there's a lot of great providers most providers are ethical they have integrity, they do great work, but. There are some not so great ones. There are some people who say they'll do X and actually do Y. There are people who are inappropriate or unethical, who don't come from a place of integrity. And when I sort of look at the the larger landscape of how psychedelics are developing, I think that's the biggest risk factor to to full mainstream integration. Is it's not just a it, it, it's not that it's going to be 10% of providers are, are unsavory, but if even one percent of providers are unethical or unsavory that tail risk is significant and so i'm so i'm really asking the hard question of how do we manage and mitigate that so we don't have a backlash like we did in the, the 60s
2: yeah that's uh that's beautiful maybe you could uh, start a site on third wave where people can talk about their experiences with the uh, with different practitioners, because you know that's
0: that's exactly what we're doing. You oh, you, you hit the nail so. on the head, almost like a like a contributing editor model, where right. when people go to a retreat or they go to a clinic or they work with a coach or a therapist, they can then do, you know, a, a, a thousand word write up about yeah. it, where this is this is my experience, this is how it changed me, and then also what what we're also going to do roll out next year is is um, I don't know if I would consider it a committee necessarily, but just. Have sort of ethical agreements that we abide by, and if there are issues or challenges, to to hopefully help arbitrate or to help mediate or to help, you know, ensure that we we keep a, a really coherent, and um, educated and pioneering group of providers who can both hold space for healing but also inspire new paradigms and and cultural shifts.
2: Yeah, I'm, and and I know you see the same thing, but there's a there's a lot of these practitioners out there that um they, they have an experience and and they'll heal something great so they have really good intentions but then they go they'll go online and take a three-hour course on you know how to uh, facilitate ayahuasca and suddenly they're an ayahuasca shaman promoting all of this stuff but they they tend to take people on their journeys and not allow the people to take their own journeys with it um we see this a lot where that that context that people go into retreats or um or medicine sessions where the practitioner will will preframe them with oh you're going to have trauma come up this is what you're going to experience this is how you navigate it but the ones we've seen, the people that go through that, they experience the trauma. Yet, if you have somebody who says, you know, this is going to be a beautiful experience, you'll be able to access this, some of it may not be pleasant, but some of it can be really blissful. Those people tend to have a really nice experience. And they they come out very changed. I mean, you talk about, you talked about how, you know, after your LSD experience, you came out changed. And, you know, it's, it's, nearly always for the the good. I mean you you talked about stopping alcohol. I mean the people in the psychedelic community that I know of um none of them drink alcohol. I mean it's just it's like nobody even wants alcohol. Um and you know you look at the damage to the system and the psychedelics are pretty minimal impact. Um But And th- and I'm, I
0: I'm glad you brought up alcohol too because part of the the context here culturally is we've been cut off from this for 2000 years you know we we had a we had a nice little stint in the 60s 50s and 60s when LSD came back on the scene but as a western populace we haven't worked with psychedelics significantly since the Eleusinian mysteries which were cut off at the end of the 4th century mm-hmm. and so this is 50 60 70 generations that's the wisdom has just been totally lost and so um Andrew Weil brought this up in a conversation that we had a few months ago. He's like, when alcohol first really came on the scene in the United States, everyone was getting rip-roaring drunk all the time because they had no idea how to utilize it. And then it was only when there was a more responsible sort of approach taken, you know, it could be utilized without getting rip-roaring drunk all the time. And I think psychedelics are similar in that. I mean, obviously like biologically and psychedelics are way healthier and there's a lot there, but I think in terms of, of the context in which they're being used, we're only just getting a sense for oh, here's how these work, and here's the container they need, and here's the amount, and so you have a lot of people I think who are doing way too much, or who are jumping way too deep, or who don't have the proper support, and that I think it's 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 why I've talked publicly so much about microdosing. A lot of people see you know, the book or they see the work that we've done through third wave and they think, oh, Paul's the microdosing guy. Clearly he's only microdosed. And (laughs) no, there's, there's been a lot of like deep ego dissolving, whatever. And from a communication perspective, microdosing is such a great way to start to engage with this because the threshold of risk is very low and it allows for a felt direct experience before potentially, I mean, you and I both know, like, these, these are not medicines to mess with, so to say, that they require some level of reverence and intentionality and that like you just go in and you smoke 5-MeO-DMT, you could potentially, I, I've seen people who haven't been able to sleep for six months because it's been so intense for them. So I think that, that cultural understanding of it is, is really relevant and important here.
2: And that brings up another point. I mean, well, back on alcohol. I mean, yeah. as a medical doctor, if I looked at it, alcohol would be a Schedule One, right? And and MDMA, psilocybin, LSD would not. But this brings up the point of medicalization versus legalization. Yeah. Um, one of the concerns that a lot of people have in the medical community that have been following the research and and paying attention to it is medicalization will change the the outcomes that people uh, are seeking um, you know i'm not talking about treating the disease states like the depression and anxiety i mean those those are pretty clear but mm-hmm. when it comes to like mdma to treat ptsd the medicalization of it i think is going to reduce the impact of it i mean you know you you read the rules on the practitioners and it's like Okay, you have to sit away from the person, you can't touch them, you can't uh, communicate with them other than just asking questions. I mean, that is not conducive to a good MDMA experience. Uh, Even the studies have shown that if you're in a small group, the social connections that occur have a much greater impact than if you're doing it alone or with a a therapist um, in that sense. you know, Gold Dolan has done a lot of research on that up at um, Hopkins, and I've had some conversations with her about, you know, what they've been doing with it. And, and, you know, there is concern about medicalization. And I think the same thing with psilocybin, you know, if they take it off the schedule one, but still make it a medical uh, prescriptive thing, you know, what are we going to end up with? I mean, are we going to really lose those benefits that can occur in a set and setting that is designed around the way the the medicines actually impact the psyche?
0: So there's so much here, and we could probably do a full mm-hmm. podcast alone on this, just because there's mm-hmm. so many different things. But I, the, the, I, I'll, I'll tell you how I think about it in 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 a, in a few different ways. One is. Even in a strictly medical model, I do believe that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy will be more effective than current treatments. So I think first and foremost, I think that's important to establish that it is an improvement. Um, With that being said, a lot of the, let's say, there's, there's a lot within why people are depressed or why people are alcoholics or why people are, you know, have high levels of anxiety or PTSD. A significant part of it is uh, adverse childhood experiences and early trauma, uh, issues with attachment, you know, no doubt. But another significant part of it is this sort of epidemic of loneliness and a sense of disconnection from self, a sense of disconnection from earth, a sense of disconnection from these other things. And so the medicalization, more so because it is within the sort of pharmaceuticalized model, it's very uh, reductionist. Uh, it's, it's very focused on the biological aspects and elements. Very much focused on the individual. Uh, and so that that approach, while effect, like I said, more effective than Prozac and Zoloft and some of these other medications, it loses the element of, like you said, the the communal bonding and the connection. And so. What's happening now in Oregon, so Oregon legalized adult use psilocybin um, in 2020. It will go into effect in 2023. Colorado, just a few weeks ago, legalized adult use psilocybin. uh, That will go into effect in 2024. I do believe that the future of psychedelics, so to say, the future of mental health, the future even of spirituality is communal. Almost think like churches, but with psychedelics, where there's 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 a community model around it. There there are rituals. Uh, there's 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 a coherence that comes from it. That these are done in groups. I think the group element is so so important. Not only because of the healing, but also because of accessibility. Right. Like when we look at the medicalized model, it's two therapists for one person, which it looks like will cost upwards of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. To do that treatment, which if covered by health insurance is great, but that may be tricky to, to to start with. So I think there there are just a lot of challenges with attempting to stuff these sacred and beautiful medicines into a pharmaceuticalized model. So one of my one of my favorite thinkers and, and visionaries is Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller always said to 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 build a new model. Don't try to fix. The old model instead, create a new model that makes the old one obsolete. And so just like what's happened, you know, the example that I sometimes give is like Elon Musk, right? When he was building Tesla and the vision of what Tesla is, he wasn't attempting to figure out how Tesla could fit into this sort of extractive fossil fuel um, container. He just said, no, we're gonna go for full regenerative energy, solar, car, batteries the whole thing and try to build this entirely new paradigm and system. And I think psychedelics are asking for something similar. We, we, we cannot attempt to pharmaceuticalize them because in that attempt, like you said, they will lose so much of their efficacy. We really need a totally new paradigm about how we think about mental health, about how we think about healthcare, about how we think about community, about how we think about all these aspects. And psychedelics, I think, are that they're, they're, they're sort of a, a, a multifaceted tool that can unlock this new paradigm that's rooted in interconnectedness and rooted in interbeing. Because the current pharmaceutical model assumes that we as humans are separate from our communities, our families, the environment. It assumes we are purely an individual. And that is just fundamentally not true. And so psychedelics are opening up this recognition of, oh, I am the, my well-being is deeply interrelated to everything around me. And therefore the systems that we create have to recognize that truth of interconnectedness.
2: You know, that's, that is perfect because that's, that's what we did with our medical center is we took it and we looked at why are we not looking at the human being as a complex adaptive model? And how can we teach the medical system how to use this. And when we were like, it can't be done, the thinking that is used in that doesn't work. So we had to create a whole new model of medicine around this complexity aspect. So I'm uh, very familiar with what you're talking about and uh, very on board with, with that kind of an approach for sure.
0: And I can't wait to, we're going to get to turn around the the mic to you on Third Way's podcast in the, <laughs> in the, in the coming months. And I can't wait to hear all about that because You know, with the combination of aura rings and the Apollo neuro and, uh, you know, inside tracker and, you know, the capacity to do blood, like there's so much now where we can really go, how can we actually look at you not as uh, a cog in the machine? Because I think that's how modern healthcare often treats folks, but really as this unique and beautiful human being that requires your own approach for what it is that you need
2: yeah and what's interconnected with everything i mean this is exactly this is the next phase of consciousness uh is getting into this interconnectedness that you know eastern eastern uh, philosophy has embraced that for for a long time and uh, now finally the west is starting to uh, understand that absolutely so this has been great having you today. I'm going to honor your time, and uh, despite my desire to chat longer, uh, I'm going to bow out and uh, say thank you so much for the information that you've supplied. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, it was great to uh, have this conversation.
0: Thank you, Dan. It's been it's been an honor to be here. You know, if, if just just as you know, folks are kind of wondering where to go from here, or, you know, we mentioned a couple of things. Like we talked about a new book out on on microdosing called Mastering Microdosing, which can be found on Amazon. Um, Our training program, we start our next cohort in February and we have them every few months. That's just on Third Wave's website, our coaching certification program. And the Third Wave's website is thethirdwave.co. So if folks are listening to this, we have a newsletter, we have a podcast. If they really wanna go deeper into this landscape, then you know, check out the website, get on the email list, uh, check out our newsletter and and then also reach out to me personally. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, paul austin three w. And if you have thoughts, perspectives, questions, or on anything that we talked about today, i would I would absolutely love to hear from from many of the
2: listeners. Well, I think you might get inundated with some uh, some I requests hope so. after this.
0: <laughs> I hope so. All
2: right. thank you so much, Paul. It's a great talk. Thank to you, you, Daniel.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.